Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and today we are talking about relationship building. And in fact, Fast Company Magazine described my guest, Judge Jim Tan, as an ace relationship builder. And he joins us today to discuss tools that will help you increase your ability to work successfully with others, learn to be more aware of colleagues, and better problem-solve and then negotiate. And his book, Radical Collaboration, Five Essential Skills, to overcome defensiveness and build successful relationships has been on Amazon's top seller list for workplace organizational psychology and negotiations book for most of the past 16 years. The second edition of Radical Collaboration was published on HarperCollins just a couple years ago, January 2020, and that book is on my desk. So for most of his career, Jim Tan was a senior administrative law judge for the state of California with jurisdiction over workplace disputes. And after retiring as a judge, he has served on the faculties of the International Management Program of the Stockholm School of Economics, Leadership Academy of the University of California, and Harvard University Talent Development Program. I'm losing my voice here. Jim, good morning. Welcome to your partner in Success Radio. Hi, Denise. It's good to be here. Thank you for sending that book. I've got it. Listen, I've got to tell you right now. I'm fascinated with chapter two, and the title of that chapter is "Hey, Buzz Off." For some reason, <laughs> that, yeah. that really struck me right in the gut because I'm known for this. Hey, stop talking to me. Back off. So, I right, think you're right. Fun with this book. I did. I did. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is, you know, we, when I was a judge, we found so many problems when people would get defensive and, uh, and that's how they would react. You know, I buzz off. I'm not defensive, you know, and, uh, it seemed to be at the heart of so much of the conflict that, that I was dealing with as a judge. I'm almost never had to deal with pure legal issues. Some people were always before me because somebody would start feeling vulnerable and then they'd get defensive. And when we get defensive, our, our thinking becomes rigid and our IQ drops about 20 points and we simply become stupid. And we're seeing that on social media. I mean, what a septic tank that is right now. We see it everywhere. We see it in yeah. politics. We see it in, in government. We see it in the corporate world. I, you know, it's, it's uh, rampant these days. Is it worse? Is it getting worse? Because, I mean, look, we all get defensive. I get defensive. And you know who I get defensive with the most? Me. I'll say something myself and go, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> You're not that boss of me. <laughs> I lead an interesting I, I life, I have to tell you. It's necessarily getting worse in most places. I think it's certainly getting worse in politics um, but I think businesses are actually doing a better job of dealing with defensiveness now because they, they, they've sort of come to the realization over the years that relationships are important and you need to pay attention to them. Well, let's talk about that because it is so important that you know people hire and maintain really great employees or partners or whoever's going to be the best fit in their business or whatever they're offering. And I'm glad. I mean, I'm really glad that people are saying, you know, we can't just do it the way we used to do, which is basically I'm in the corner office. You do what I tell you. You can't do that anymore. Yeah. And we saw, we saw a big change in attitude when the, the global economic situation just melted down too. And the, and businesses cut and cut and cut right to the bone, and then there was nothing else to cut, and they had to figure out how to improve productivity during that time because they couldn't cut anymore to save money. And so the only thing they could do is make people or help people uh, work together better, 
And if you didn't have skills to do that, it was pretty obvious uh, because you were being sidelined uh, and just not being very productive at all. So a lot of organizations are putting more energy into that now after the you know 2008 meltdown. Look, I remember 2008. I live in southwest Louisiana, and I would see bumper stickers that would say, last person out of the state, turn the lights off, and they weren't kidding. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It was not a good time. But it was a it was a good learning experience. I mean, if you survived, uh, a lot of unfortunately, a lot of companies didn't survive. A lot of businesses didn't survive. As, as they're going through that with COVID as well. Uh, you know, it's just there's not much they can do in so many ways other than try to help their people be more effective. And that's not something that that people typically learn. Uh, I mean, most of us aren't taught how to build relationships. Uh, they're not trained in that, so they don't have a lot of the skills necessary to to build strong collaborative relationships. But if they can if they can get skillful at it, being skillful at collaboration is enormously helpful for an organization. Uh, conflict goes down, trust goes up, everything seems to run smoother. Uh, they come up with better solutions. I mean, we have a lot of research on that. The, an organization that has a more collaborative culture will simply kick the butt of an organization that is more adversarial and more conflicted. And that makes sense. And you know, it would seem like it would be these days at least, especially since 2008 and now during COVID, that that would be one of the top leadership skills that are taught. But I'm, unless I'm missing something, I'm not seeing that that's really – being taught or is it well at some of the high levels it is in fact i would say half of my work uh, is uh, participating as a faculty member in very high-end leadership programs typically to go on for like six months or so and they bring me in to talk about collaboration for maybe two or three days uh, so organizations uh, when they're designing their leadership uh, programs now uh, most of them, at least that I'm aware of, are adding some form of collaboration training in there. So there is an awareness on that, but it's usually uh, aimed at the very high-end leaders because it's you know it's expensive uh, training, and, and uh, a lot of times the businesses are cutting back on training now, and so they, they'll still be willing to put money into training their, their top leaders. So that's where the focus seems to be these days, at least in my world. See, I like what you said about when they're designing their leadership. I, I like that because I think a lot of people, it used to be anyway, they didn't design anything. They just got up, hit the floor running, and went to work and did their best. Now they have yeah. to be a lot more yeah. Well, it, you know, our our world is so much more complex than than I first started out, than when I first started out, and uh, uh, we're more interdependent. Uh, the, the days of the Lone Ranger are pretty much gone, and so it's uh, they're more moving parts, and so people need to have some skills at dealing with the moving parts and making them work together. Which is, usually, which is usually people working together. Right, right. And if you're even solopreneurs and, you know, people like me who work from home, we own our own business, we have a team, but they're remote. I've never met any mm -hmm. of my team ever, but, boy, I put a lot of faith and trust in them. But I also make darn yeah. sure they have everything they need and, in fact, that they're better at something than I am. I know what to ask them. I know how to get what I want out of them but I don't necessarily have to be the boss. In fact, it's detrimental when I decide to be the boss. <laughs> yeah. If you get good people and, and make sure they know what they're supposed to be doing and then stay out of their way, usually that's a, a pretty good uh, philosophy. And ask them for, you know, what they think, because in, in my case, I'm a web developer. I own a small digital marketing agency and, I will hire people who are really top-notch at doing basically one thing. So they're mm -hmm. constantly learning. They're constantly improving their skills. They're on top of what's new and, you know, the best developments. I'm not. 
you know, I'm too busy leading yeah. the charge. I mean, I can do what they do, but it would probably take me a lot longer than it should. So I let them go. And I will always, and this took me a long time to figure out because I'm an A-type personality and I'm the boss, but it took me a long time to figure <laughs> out that, seriously, that I needed to ask them what they thought. Do you have a better idea? You know, just give me some advice here. And that always is helpful. Yeah. Well, and and the issue that you run into there, though, is that if you're hiring people that are specialists in one particular area, rarely does that one particular area drive the whole business. They need to work together with the other, you know, 10 people on the team uh, who also have their areas of, of specialty but it doesn't work unless they all work together. So uh, they, they really need to be skilled at both what their substance, you know, what the subject matter is that they were hired for, but then also working with other people there because they can't do it alone usually. For me, that wouldn't work, but I absolutely understand what you're talking about. So let's, I'm still on buzz off. I just fascinated with this entire chapter. So you have boxes. You have box two to one, box two to two. Let's talk about this because we're really talking about defensiveness. And these days, right, well, right. anytime, it's way too easy to get you know, defensive or mad or run your mouth, and then you have to clean that up. Let's talk about that. Okay. I, you know, being getting defensive is probably the single thing that I see that undermines more leaders than anything else, uh, especially if you're in a you know, high-end leadership role. If you start getting defensive at any time when you're trying to solve conflicts or build collaboration or build relationships, it's like throwing blood and water to a shark, and it's just going to create a feeding frenzy. So I think getting defensive undermines more people in leadership roles than anything else I've seen. You say here that it's really becoming defensive is always about fear. It is always fear-based. Always, always, always. That's helpful for us to know that if we're sitting across the table from somebody who's being a defensive jerk, it's good for us to know that underneath that, that odd behavior is fear on their part. Uh, and that's helpful because if you, if you know that and you can dig skillfully enough and deep enough, you might be able to figure out what that person's fear is about. And if you can do something to reassure that person, uh, I promise you that their defensiveness is going to go away if they're not feeling the fear. And it's even, it's even more important for us to know this about ourselves. Anytime we're getting defensive, it's, there, it's because there's fear uh, underneath it. And it's usually all unconscious stuff. And so most of us aren't even aware that there's fear there. We just know that we're acting a little weird when we look back on it. But most of us don't even recognize when we're, gonna def- when we're getting defensive in the moment. You know, it's, it's not until after we've done some damage into the relationship or the conversation that we realize, well, yeah, I did get a little defensive there. You know? I, one of the, I'm listening to you very carefully here, and what I'm hearing, and you're not saying it, but I'm hearing it and I'm reading it in your book, is that we really need to have some empathy and we need to have some EQ, emotional intelligence. So I think those are really building blocks of becoming a better leader and understanding what other people are really thinking, saying, and doing and how to, to work with them. Yeah, if people have blind spots about their own defensiveness, it's going to get them into serious trouble. So, And, and it's understandable that they would have blind spots because defensive, the whole point of, a def, of us getting defensive is not defending ourselves from someone else. It's defending ourselves from that fear inside of us that we don't want to feel. And so we behave in a certain way that we don't have to feel it. A couple of fears, three, actually three big fears that we see coming up all the time are fears about our own significance, our competence, and our likability. I have some, some uh, concerns, some fear in my own mind about doing this program today. You know, I just... I just got back from Singapore last night. I'm, I'm jet-lagged. Say I'm forgetting things. I'm not making any sense. That could really cause me a lot of discomfort that I don't want to feel. And so one way that I could start lessening that discomfort, uh, I might start blaming you. You know, you're asking the wrong questions or this is the bad time to do it. And, 
so, you know, it wasn't a good setup for the program. It's not my fault. Uh, that's classic getting defensive to overcome that fear that I'm feeling about my own competency. So I blame other people. That, and see, I call that imposter syndrome. We all have it at some level all day. We have to, you know, deal with it. Well, yeah, well, we yeah, all have our own all. little particular behaviors. And in fact, I think that knowing what your behaviors are when you're starting to get defensive is part of the way out of getting defensive. It's, it's part of your, your early warning system if you know how you start to behave when you're getting defensive. For example, I've noticed over, over the years that if I'm starting to get defensive, I tend to be talking louder. I tend to talk faster. Oftentimes I feel misunderstood. So if I'm, say I'm in a room filled with people and I'm getting some feedback and all of a sudden I notice myself talking louder and faster and, and breathing faster and, and feeling misunderstood, since I know that's how I start to behave when I get defensive, that can act as an early warning system for me. And when I see myself doing that behavior, you know, the alarm bells go off, you know, ding, 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 hey, Jim, pay attention. You're doing that thing again. Then I can take some action. But unless I notice that I'm getting defensive, I can't acknowledge it to myself, and I, and I won't take any other action. So it's important, it's important to be on the lookout for what your particular signs of defensiveness are. And see, that's a great tip. For me, it's the opposite. I get very quiet. I start to draw more than I normally would, and I'm using bigger words than I normally would. And basically what I'm telling people is to go to another state. Just get away from me right now. But when I catch that, it's like you need to move to another zip code right now. But when I get when I catch myself doing that, I will stop in the moment and say, and if it's possible, I'll say, "Listen, I'm about to have a bad moment. Can we pick this up later?" And most times, people will say, "Sure," because they're probably right there with me. But you're right; yeah. you have to have yeah, you, that yeah, you, that awareness. You, Usually other people can spot our defensiveness before we can. And they may not understand what's going on. They just know that you're acting weird. Uh, but they know something is going on. You know? And so what we try to do is we try to help people recognize that they're getting defensive at an earlier point in the process. So for you, you notice that one of your signs of defensiveness is withdrawing into a, a silence and then wanting to get away or wanting to get the other people away. So anytime you see that, then you can take some action. Uh, other people, it could be very different. You know, for me, it's the fast breathing or the, the talking louder and faster. For other people, it's they have a high charge of energy in the body, or maybe they they uh, get very confused, or maybe they flood with information to prove a point. We've got a list of about 50 different signs of defensiveness uh, in the book, and typically, what we have people do is we have them go through that list and think about which ones apply to them and come up with their top three, the ones that they're, that they're so good at that they could teach at the university level. And then they have to be on the lookout for those behaviors because that becomes their best friend and that becomes their early warning system because it tips them off anytime they get defensive. And anytime they get defensive, they're becoming less effective. So that's, that's the start of the process of trying to deal more effectively with their own defensiveness, is to recognize how you start to behave when you're getting defensive. And that list is terrific. And listen, did you really get back from Singapore last night? Uh, two nights ago, two nights ago. <laughs> but, but you're here. I mean, jet lag and all, you're here. here. So thank you. I really appreciate that. It's a long flight, too. <laughs> I uh, know, I know. I've never done it, but I've had friends who have come back and said, I think I'm going to die. <laughs> it takes them a while to get back to normal. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and I just lost my – you have a TED Talk, Cultivating Collaboration, yeah. Don't Be So Defensive. Can you kind of give us some high points for that? I think you've done a bit of that already, but cultivation sure. – Cultivating collaboration is so, so important, and I'm probably going to keep circling back to it. 
sure. Well, you know, this, this all, the book and, and the work that I do came from a pilot project that was funded by the state of California and the Hewlett Foundation and Stewart Foundations back when I was a judge, where we were trying to see why we kept seeing the same employers and the same organizations come through our system with litigation over and over and over again when other employers and organizations in the same environment drawing from the same labor pool, they weren't having trouble at all because these, these organizations that had so much conflict and so much litigation, they were costing the state of California a huge amount of money, primarily in lost productivity. So uh, we, we put a, a team together. We did a huge amount of research, got these grants, did research, and then tried to figure out from that research, what we could do to teach these very adversarial and highly conflicted organizations how to become more skilled at collaboration. So then we we went out looking for the most screwed up, dysfunctional, highly conflicted organizations that we could find in order to road test it. And we did that for several years, and we were just wildly successful we reduced the amount of measurable conflict in almost 100 different organizations by almost 70%. Oh, it saved the state of California. It, it was. It saved the state so much money that the, the state legislature created a nonprofit foundation to keep offering it in the public sector. So it really does produce a huge difference uh, if you can turn a more adversarial, more conflicted type of atmosphere into a more collaborative atmosphere and, and, and what and we found that, from that Jim, don't you find that people are healthier yeah, yeah. when they're when their tummies aren't aching all the time and they're not just oh, caught well, up in all the baloney they're not only healthier uh they're happier they're more successful at coming up with quality solutions to real problems you know they they uh one of one of the the research studies follow-up research studies showed that the the quality of the solutions they came up with were significantly better if they had collaborative relationships rather than just standard types of negotiations going in to try to reach an agreement. Uh, it was it was faster, it was less toxic. Uh, people were more uh, engaged at work. Uh, it was just everything was good all the way around, you know. And you take that, you know, I don't believe in a work-life balance. I mean, it's all one to me. You know, I can't, yeah. I cannot distinguish one from the other, but I'm a high-functioning workaholic. But most of us I, I are, loved, I, I think. It was Jack, I think it was Jack Welch that, that who, when he was uh, ahead of GE, he said, if you want work-life balance, go work for Westinghouse. <laughs> don't work for GE. Don't work for me, you know. <laughs> I remember hearing him say that, or I think I saw it on YouTube. I went, "Well, yeah, that makes sense." But the thing is, if, if you're, if you learn, this is what I'm hearing from you. If you learn how to collaborate, and apparently for yeah. some people it is a learned skill, that has to be part of who you are from the moment you wake up and you kiss your wife or your husband good morning or you pet the dog on your bed, whatever it is you're going to do, to how you treat your employees or your teammates. And then you get back home and you're not all ticked off and going, I hate my job. Doesn't that make a big difference? If you're good at collaboration, everything goes smoother. It's like adding motor oil to a motor. You know, it just helps things run better. Trust goes up, conflicts go down, you spend more time on real issues rather than protecting yourself. Uh, you, you're not wor- so much worried about self-preservation as you are problem-solving uh, because you don't have to be looking around your back all the time and, and protecting yourself. You can actually get in and solve the problem. So people, they do a better job. They're happier, healthier. It's, it makes a huge difference. And anybody that's been locked into a work situation or or any kind of a relationship situation that is just toxic knows the toll that that can take on your on your body, your mental health, you know, your psyche. So it's it's pretty yeah, obvious the difference. I would think it would be. And listen, I agree with you that once I learned how to 
to be a better collaborator instead of just me saying, do what you're told and nobody gets hurt, which I have been known to do. It's not a good way to deal with people. But but once I learned that I did need to collaborate and I did need to invite people into how I operate, things got, you're right, a whole lot easier. Now, Jim, in the book, we covered, you've got five essential skills, and we covered, yeah. you know, yeah. collaborative collaborative intention. You know, so now let's go, if you would, <laughs> I'm going to bite my tongue on that, that word. I've been saying sure. it so much, it's like I'm not even sure if I'm saying it correctly anymore. So now let's go to, to the second part, which is essential skill openness. That one, I think, yeah. is really yeah. important. There's been, a, there's been a lot of research showing that one of the more important things you can do to improve the effectiveness of any organization is simply to increase the level of openness within an organization. And organizations that are uh, more effective at collaboration tend to be significantly more open because people are they're feeling more psychologically safe to raise difficult issues and deal with them directly. You know, they, they, they're not as fearful about uh, saying, wait a minute, this is a really bad idea. We shouldn't be putting our time and energy and resources there. They're willing to say that. So that sometimes that means that um, the organization has a little more chaos if people are really willing to speak up and say what's on their mind, but they do a significantly better job of resolving disputes because you can't solve problems if people aren't willing to talk about it. And the most recent research on that, which is just very powerful, uh, comes from Google, where they, of course, Google is one of the most data-driven companies in the world. And uh, Google knows that so much of their work is performed by teams that are formed and reformed, and then they go on to the next project. And, and you know, so they're, they're always uh, moving. And so they're trying to figure out how do you put together the best team? So they looked at at everything they could think of regarding what might uh, make a difference on a team. If you could think of some piece of data and there was a way of measuring it, they measured it. You know, they looked at, uh, they looked at things like the gender balance and the age balance and the amount of experience and how long they'd been with the company. And and they looked at, uh, did they, did they uh, uh, meet each other on social networks? Did they vacation together? Did they go to lunch together? You, you name it, they measured it. And at the end of this two-year period, they realized that almost everything that they were measuring, they could do just as good a job picking a team by throwing a dart at a dartboard. It just had no impact whatsoever. They found the same thing on high-performing teams and low-performing teams. But there was one thing that was just far and above everything else. It was on every single high-performing team, and that was this feeling of psychological safety, which is a, a feeling that people can raise difficult issues and they don't have to worry about losing their job. You know, they don't have to protect themselves. Uh, they can deal with things directly. And it just made a huge difference to the success of the teams if people felt safe enough to do that. And, of course, a lot of that has to do with how much skill they have in, in solving problems, how good the listeners are, you know, is it, uh, is, is the boss really paying attention to what they're, what they're saying or, uh, and can people speak up and say what's on their mind or that do they have to be conflict avoidant and passive aggressive, uh, instead of being direct. Uh, so all of those are factors there, but, but openness is such a key, at having an effective organization. That makes so, perfect sense. So, teaching, yeah, teaching things like how to speak how up to speak. And, and listening, and those are, those are important skills. And rarely does an organization want to bring somebody in to do a listening exercise or teach listening. You know, everybody thinks that we're really good at listening. And for the most part, most of us really suck at it. We think we're good, but we're multitasking and we're not paying attention and we're not checking for understanding and so it's it's an important skill to pay attention to. Well, I agree with you. I just had somebody send me a question since we're talking about openness. She wants okay. to know what is the difference between openness and vulnerability? Because these days on social media and you know, if you open up anybody's you know, list, yeah. if you're on yeah. half a dozen lists they're going to be talking about, you need to be vulnerable. I'm not sure I understand that, but 
what are the differences? Well, I think you can be, uh, you can, being open can uh, feel vulnerable to some people. Um, what we're talking about with openness is not that you just go in and you blab everything about, you know, what you did over the weekend or you talk about the problems you're having with your spouse and that kind of stuff when you go to work on Monday, you know. What we're saying is important when you're talking about an organizational situation is you're willing to be self-disclosing enough on the issues that matter for work. So you have to be willing to, to stand up and say, hey, this meeting isn't going in a good direction or this project isn't worth putting our time and energy into. You know, I don't have good feelings about that. I think we should stop this or we should do something different. It's that kind of information that's important for people to feel safe enough to, to bring up in the workplace. Now, some people, they want to just be an open book uh, and share everything that's going on in their life. And that's fine if that's fine for them, but they also need to recognize that there are other people that like to keep more information to themselves. They're not as open. And so they may not want to disclose as much about what went on in the weekend or what's going on in their marriage. And that's fine, too, in a work situation, as long as they both recognize that there are issue, work-related issues where they do need to be open. And that's, that's where the openness counts. So, so defining what's personal uh, and what's business is important. Yeah, and and people uh, uh, oftentimes when they're when they're stretching and being more open, it can feel very vulnerable. That's why it's so important that you have a culture in the organization that supports that openness. That people, you know, that the the boss makes sure that they really do want to hear what the people have to say that they're not going to jump down their throat halfway through and tell them to get lost. Uh, because that's if people are fearful about it, then they are feeling very vulnerable, and they're probably not going to be as open. But being open does not necessarily mean you have to feel vulnerable. You, you say what's on your mind, and you don't need to feel vulnerable. Understood. And I like what you said about psychological safety. That. Many of us don't even think about that when it comes to our work day. We just do what we need to do, and then at the end of the day, it was either a great day or it wasn't. But you're right. Psychological safety is something that we all need to pay attention to. Are we treating our people well? Are we really listening to them? Are we inviting them to be you know, a bigger participant, or do we need to say, hey, that's terrific, but we don't need to talk about your cats right now. Let's talk about what's on the table. There's just so many things yeah. that can be yeah. going on. Mm-hmm. Well, it, people need to feel safe. Uh, you know, it's just there's so much research showing that if they feel safe, they're going to be more creative. Uh, they're going to be more engaged. Uh, if people aren't feeling safe to raise raise new issues or new ideas, they just keep every, their thoughts, their fears, and their ideas to themselves. So if you're working in an environment where people aren't feeling safe and your, your organization depends on creativity in order to thrive, you're in deep trouble because uh, environments that, where people don't feel safe are not creative environments. If you want to be, if you want to have a creative environment, people need to feel safe enough to try something new and potentially fail without them losing their job. And you can see a big difference between organizations that are open to that and organizations that are punitive. You know, that if mm. somebody if makes a mistake, they're, they're, they're playing the blame, the blame game. Right. Versus, versus if somebody makes a mistake they'll have the conversation that's like, well, what can we learn from this? You know, how can we avoid making that same mistake in the future? There's a very big difference between those kinds of organizations. And that leads me to the, the third essential skill, which is self-accountability. And I think you just yeah. touched on yeah. that a little bit. Self-accountability has uh, a lot to do with recognizing what choices we're, we have available to us and what choices we're making and then take responsibility for both the intended and the unintended consequences of those choices. 
you know, as a judge, uh, I had a lot of people that came to me and they'd, they'd say, well, you know, Your Honor, I, I didn't mean for that to happen, so you shouldn't be upset with me. And it's like they're walking around with that get-out-of-jail card for free. And that's not the way it works in an organization. If you if you do something and something happens that you didn't intend, you, you still need to take responsibility for it and, and clean up the mess that you've created there. Uh, a lot of times in organizations, people feel powerless. It's like the boss controls them at work, the, the family controls them at home, and they just don't have much choice. But most people in most situations have more choice than they believe they do. And so if we can get people to examine what their belief system is about how much choice they have and move up a little bit on the scale anytime they get into a difficult situation, they're phenomenally more creative uh, rather than just sit back and, and feel that they're powerless. And if you have a belief system that uh, where you believe you have more choice, uh, that can be mobilizing. If you have a belief system where you you're don't have any choice, you, know, you, you tend to feel victimized, uh, you tend to feel helpless, and it can, para- it can be paralyzing versus mobilizing those people that you know have the the belief that they can make choices so a lot of what we do there is just having people examine how much choice they really do have and and looking for more alternatives anytime they get into a situation you know how many different things i could do a lot of times people don't want to make choices because they're difficult choices but and they say oh no i can't i can't do that i don't have i don't have a choice you know i need to stay in this job well they do have a choice. It's just a difficult choice. So that's that's it, a different ballgame. Yes, it is. And I'm, I'm looking at this. It's a, I love these boxes in your book. Many people forfeit choices not realizing that not to choose is also a choice. The way people make little decisions, this is important, the way people make little decisions is a reflection on how they make bigger decisions in their lives. Yeah. That's why if we can get them to change their belief system about, you know, how much choice they have for everything, it it pays off in big time. Well, and that goes on. It goes on to say, what are your beliefs? And you you give us a scale of zero to nine. At the low end of zero mm-hmm. means you believe your life is predetermined and you simply have to go with what's presented to you. That is not me, by the way. And at the high yeah. end, the yeah. nine... <laughs> Can you tell? At the high end, a nine means you believe and you determine everything. You choose your body and how you think, how you feel, behave, including your relationships, illnesses. I think I'm probably closer to a nine than anything. Well, you know, what's interesting is when when we work with teams, oftentimes we'll have people write down on a piece of paper what their, you know, what their number is, how much choice do they have on that scale of, of zero to nine. Uh, and then they go up and stand on the wall. And it's amazing that, that there are people down at the low end and people up at the high end, and they've never, they've never thought about it. They've never talked about it. Uh, and the people up at the high end, they just don't have any understanding about the people at the low end, and the people at the low end think the people at the high end are crazy. You know, how could you think that you, you <laughs> have much control over who your parents are or that kind of stuff, you know? I'm <laughs> yeah. definitely annoyed. <laughs> so keep, keep going. So it's, it's a real eye-opener for people to see how their colleagues may have different beliefs than they do regarding that. And what you said just now is that, you know, people at the higher end don't, really don't understand the people at the lower end and kind of look down at them, and that's pretty judgmental. But we are all judgmental people. People say, oh, don't judge. Are you kidding me? We judge every moment of every day. So that's just a non-starter for me. We judge yeah. everything we have to to stay safe, you know, one to of, find out what's going one on. Of we have to judge. Yeah, one of the things that we try to do is to get people to turn their judgments into curiosity when they're looking at other people. Exactly, and that's what I was trying to do. What's that really about? Why is that person acting that way? And that's a a helpful strategy. Well, it is. And, you know, once you, you know, do, if you start kind of leaning into, you know, really being curious, not 
you know, oh, you know, well, what happened in your marriage? I went into that kind of thing. But just curious. You'll see something that you think, oh, gosh, you know, did she tie her shoes this morning? What's going on? Then you flip that to saying, I wonder if she's okay. You know, does she need any help? Can, you know, and you start watching to see if there's anything you can do or that needs to be done. So healthy curiosity yep. is something I think we need more of. It makes a difference. It really does. And listen, uh, you know, I have, I catch myself being very judgmental. And then I have to sit down and have a chat, you know, Denise, sit down, let's have a chat. <laughs> and I have been known to actually smack my own hands. Raise your left hand, smack <laughs> You have to be aware of what you're doing. Yeah. Well, and a lot of people have a real blind spot about that, and they don't recognize. I mean, you, you have the advantage of noticing it. Uh, you, you've got the skill enough that you can see when you're doing it, and you can take some action to change it a little bit. But a lot of people are just absolutely blind to that, which, which actually leads to the, to the next skill, which is self-awareness. And uh, so we really focus on increasing people's self-awareness about those blind spots. You know, how are they behaving in ways that they're just completely unaware of? What's the, what their motivation is? So we we focused uh, the self-awareness really on a couple different things. One was how people behave when they get into a relationship around three key behaviors: uh, inclusion, control, and openness because their preferences around those behaviors when they get into relationships have a really big impact on how compatible they are in the workplace. So we try to get people to understand what their preferences are. You know, do they like being around people all the time or do they like working by themselves? Do they like being in charge or would they rather have somebody give them some clear uh, orders? You know, are they the kind of person that goes in and, and shares everything about the weekend, or do they keep things pretty much close to their vest? You know, how much openness and self-disclosure do they want? And those three uh, items, uh, if we can get people to understand what their preferences are and then uh, not get rigid about those preferences but have some flexibility when they're dealing with somebody else that may have a different preference than they do, that can be very helpful. Because it isn't our preferences that get us into trouble. It's our rigidity about the preferences. You know, I have to be in control or I can only work alone or I can only work on a team. Anytime we start saying things like that, we're going to get into trouble if you're talking about an organization. Can you give us some examples of where you've seen people just say, oh, I didn't know I was that rigid. Ow. So now what do I do? Sure, yeah. Uh, we see a lot of times where, where we see people, because uh, we, we, we have them line up the same way I was telling you about before with their belief about how much choice they have. You know, we have psychometric instruments uh, that we use that measure people's uh, preferences regarding inclusion, control, and openness. And so then we'll have them line up on the wall. And oftentimes they're very surprised uh, you know, they'll look at each other and the people who were up on a nine on openness, they looked down at, uh, I remember one time when, when uh, they, there was somebody down that was a zero on huh? wanting to be self-disclosing. Be self-disclosing. You know? And oh. they said, wow, you know, we didn't recognize that you were down that low. He said, yeah, you know, and every Monday when you come in and you try and tell me about what's going on in your weekend and I tell you I really don't want to hear that, that's what I mean. I really don't want to hear that. <laughs> And they were quite surprised by that. We have different, all of us have different preferences. We just need to to not get rigid in those preferences. There really is a zero? I love that. I wouldn't have thought yeah. it. He was willing to, to flex up and stretch it when there was work-related things that he needed to talk about. But he didn't want to talk about his marriage, and he didn't want to talk about his kids, and he didn't want to talk about where he goes on vacation or anything like that. He felt that was his business and not their business, and he didn't have a, an attitude about it, so they really didn't even recognize that. But it wasn't until we lined them up on the wall that the people up at the top realized, oh, <laughs> I get it now. You really, you really don't want to have those conversations. He said, yeah, that's right. 
you know, and I've been telling you that for years and you haven't been listening. So they paid attention from then on. So how did it work out? Did they actually try to ratchet back all the the personal stuff? Look, I'm yeah, with Kim. I don't I, want to share my personal life, and I probably don't want to hear about yours. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, we've, we've had other, other situations where people are, are very high on inclusion, and they want to go out with, with their friends and colleagues for lunch every day, every day you know, and other people – no, I'd rather I'd rather have my sandwich in my office and have my alone time there, you know. And they start talking about what their preferences are, and they've never really thought about that. They just felt like the the person who had a a low inclusion need was sort of antisocial and didn't like them because he didn't want to go out to lunch with them all the time. But but it, he liked them very much. He just didn't. He just needed some time alone to recharge during the day, you know. So they were making up stories about each other because they hadn't been open about what their preferences were. So once we can get them to talk about that, uh, understand the impact that their preferences have on other people, uh, much of the conflict just goes away because people are willing to to self-adjust. Right. And I find I I am a high-functioning introvert. In fact, I figure that I will – you know, I'm going to grow up and be the, the crazy cat lady sitting on a porch rocker with a shotgun over my knee saying, get off the grass. I really <laughs> intend to grow up and be that person. I'm not shy. I'm not even a little bit shy, and I don't really have any filters, but I need to be alone. And listen, growing up as a kid, that was tough. I got called everything you can imagine, including frigid by a seventh grader. And I remember looking at him and saying, <laughs> I don't think you understand that word. You need to go to the library. (laughs) I just wanted to be left alone. I wasn't cold. I wasn't stuck up. I just didn't need people yakking at me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and the thing is, the distribution, if you look at, at, say, uh, inclusion, you know, do you you want to be, have your time alone? You want to be in a large social setting, you know? Uh, if you look at that scale on zero to nine, the population in the world is almost perfectly equal. What that means is that whatever your preference is regarding inclusion, about 90% of the rest of the world has a different preference than you do. Now, that is very helpful information to know. Whatever your preference is, whether it's inclusion, whether it's control, whether it's openness, most people in the world have a different preference than you do. It can be kind of humbling, you know. Well, I just assume that most people do. You know, I maybe it's part of you know, being emotionally intelligent, I guess, but well, I just always assume that I'm not doing everything the right way and everybody has their own thing. I think you probably have more exposure than most people to a wide variety of attitudes too because of the work that you do. A True. lot of people just make the assumption, the blind assumption that everybody is like me. You know, I like going out to lunch with everybody. If they don't like going out to lunch with everybody, then there's something wrong with them. Uh-huh. They don't think, well, you know, what, what's it like to just recharge and have some time alone, you know? They don't think about that. It's a that's why that's why it's a blind spot because they're blind to it. Interesting. So you you mentioned earlier that you have tools that that you measure people with. Yeah. What, what do yeah. those look like? Well, it's a, the one we use is it's called the Firo Element B. Firo uh, theory has been around for a long time. It's Firo uh, stands for Fundamental Interpersonal Relations Orientation. It was uh, created by one of my mentors, a fellow named Will Schutz, and um, it was used to help the Navy put teams together. Back when, when Will was doing his research, the Navy believed that if they just took the best person in each job and put them on a team, you'd have the best team. But we know that's not the case now because so much of what makes an effective team is the way that team members work together. And so Will was trying to see what the big factors are that have so much impact on compatibility, and that's how he narrowed it down to inclusion, control, and and openness. And when he was able to put teams together for the Navy, he was working with battleship command teams when they got under pressure. So when he could 
could put the, the teams together based upon their preferences regarding inclusion, control, and openness, he improved their performance by a full 50%. I mean, it's just a staggeringly large immediate improvement in performance just by the way you put the teams together. So he created something called the FIRO theory, uh, and it's been around for a long time. And then over his lifetime, he kept improving it, and, and we used the, his most modern uh, version of that. It's about it's 71 questions, I think, and and it takes you know 15, 20 minutes to fill it out. But it's it has uh, a lot of accuracy and, and gives a lot of information to people. So. And I find this fascinating. I actually have not heard of that. So remember I told you in the pre-interview that I always learn something brand new from my guests, and you just taught me something brand new. I'm going to be looking that up. But here's my, my question, and actually I would love for you to do some more case studies if we have time, but why I, – I know you're a judge, but why did you go down this path? I mean, was it just part of – the work that you were doing, the you know, the knowledge that you well, were picking well, up and dealing in the courts. How did this happen? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I always, I did a huge amount of mediation as a judge, doing settlement conferences, and I loved that. Uh, I think I've done probably somewhere between fifteen hundred and two thousand mediations, um, primarily on labor disputes. I think I've mediated more school district labor strikes than anybody else in the United States. So I, one of the reasons why I was invited to participate in this project that was funded by the state and the Hewlett Foundation was because I had so much success at doing mediation. Uh, and at the time, I really didn't have a good understanding of, of what seemed to work well, you know, why I was successful. I was sort of just doing it by feel without really understanding it. So when we did this research, uh, I could look back on it and say, ah, yeah, that's why it was successful. Uh, and I found that, uh, in fact, I, the state put me on a half-time status uh, for a while uh, where I was just part of this project for half-time and then was in my regular job as a judge uh, for the other half-time. That went on for a few years. And I enjoyed that so much before they got into trouble that I decided uh, after I'd been a judge for 25 years, and uh, it was close to retirement time, um, I decided that I was going to leave my job as a judge and go work for Will Schutz, the fellow I, was, I told you about earlier. And, and that was 20 years ago. So now I've, I've been teaching a number of programs, and I just find it very satisfying to be working with, with people and organizations that are trying to become more effective by increasing their collaboration rather than just fighting. So that's, that's basically how I got into it. We did the project. I ended up writing the radical collaboration book about the project. Uh, it ended up getting published and then uh, translated into a bunch of different languages. It's in uh, Japanese and Chinese and Dutch and Swedish and uh, Spanish. It's coming out in German uh, soon the second edition and in uh, Brazilian Portuguese. So, uh, so when the book got published, then my world went from California to the world, really. And and now most of the work that I do is uh, international work. And see, these are things that you can't possibly predict, but here you are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I the, my world changed so dramatically. And the fact that the you know the book has been on the bestseller list for so long, uh, I wouldn't have dreamed about that. I was just sort of writing this to try and get down in paper what we were doing and make sense of it in my own head. And I thought, great, you know, we we'll give a few copies out and see what happens. But boy, it was an immediate hit, and uh, Harper Collins was very helpful getting it published and 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 getting it distributed. And I, I was. Uh, quite surprised and quite pleased that it's had such strong legs over the years. Well, look, I read the book over the weekend, and I've got sticky notes all over it. You ought to see it. its I really should take a picture of it. But it's a tremendously giving book is the only thing that I can think to say. It, it gives tremendous information. It gives tips, tricks, advice. But mostly it helps us understand ourselves and 
that's what I think most people need to really work on right now is understanding ourselves and then understanding those around us so we're not constantly butting heads and going home and saying, well, that sucked, and guess who was at fault? Me. I've done that a number of times. (laughs) Well, we tried tried to write the book to make it uh, easily accessible, anybody in an organization. To, to make it helpful and, and practical, you know. So uh, I, I've been quite pleased with it because it, uh, it does give people some skills. This is not rocket science or brain surgery. It's, they're very practical kinds of things that you can implement, you know, right away and make a big difference. Typically when we're, we're working with an organization, if we go in and, and have a team that's in a lot of conflict, uh, we'll probably work with them for maybe three days in a radical collaboration workshop. And the next day when they go to work after the workshop, it's their life is different. It makes a huge positive impact on them. Just getting some, some basic practical skills. Like the, the, the last skill that we haven't uh, talked about is negotiating. And we've, we've given people there some, some uh, negotiating tools where they can use to, to plan going into a conflict and how to try to resolve that conflict in a way that's going to support the relationship rather than undermine the relationship. You know, anybody can go into a negotiation with a scorched earth policy and try to come out of it, you know, with something good, but that does so much damage to the relationship. We're trying to teach skills to help people get through those conflicts in a way that supports the relationships. And we think that the process that's in there that, that we call interest-based negotiations, um, it's, a, it's a strong process. Now, one of the mistakes that, that we made, or at least I made when we first started out on this project, was when we went out looking for organizations that had so much conflict, I felt if we just taught them how to negotiate their way through that conflict, that ought to solve the problem. But what we learned over the years was that we could teach people the best negotiating process in the world, and if they came to the table with a bad attitude or they got defensive when they were there, they would screw up any system we could teach them. So over the years, we've had to put more emphasis on those first four skills, collaborative intention, openness, self-accountability, and self-awareness, because it's the ability to have that that collaboration intention, the ability to feel safe enough to raise difficult issues, to not have blind spots, to don't get defensive. It's those skills that help the negotiating process work. So you need to have both. And self-awareness is clearly a big part of that. You, you don't know what you don't know, obviously. And it's, none of us it's, do. It's the, it's the, yeah. It's the place where we have to start. You know, all, all change starts with self-awareness. And so we spend a fair amount of time trying to get people to look at what their blind spots are, what their defensiveness is, what their beliefs are about their own accountability, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things. It's, a, it's the best place to start. No kidding. I mean, I was fascinated with this book, and it's going to – I think I shared this with you during our pre-interview that my office is in my home, and I've got two – Way over ninety seconds bookshelves in here, and I'm I just ordered a third. And every single book, and I'm proud of this. Every single book in this room came to my get came from my guests like you. There are a few books that live on my desk. They don't make it to the bookshelf. Yours is going to live on my desk. So well, I promise well, you that. But anyway, we and we're just about out of time, but I really wanted to get to the conclusion in your book, which is basically going forward, getting real, and 20 things that you can do today to improve your ability to be happy and be in relationships. Probably at this point, I need to just tell people, go buy the book, but do you want to share anything <laughs> about that? Well, you know, they can they can get a lot of information out of the book. It's it's easily available. Amazon has it. You, it's discounted on Amazon, I think, uh, so you can get a good price there. But there's also other resources. Uh, there's a, this TED talk that you mentioned earlier about defensiveness. That's people can get some good information from that. Just to go to YouTube and put in my name, Jim Tam, and and dealing with defensiveness, and it'll pop up. I'm certain. Um, and then there's a 
a lot of articles on the Radical Collaboration website. It's uh, radicalcollaboration.com. So they can get a lot of information. There's other other uh, videos on there and, and more information about what training and what the skills are. So I would encourage them to take a look at that as well. Thank you. Jim, it has been wonderful speaking with you, and I thank you for spending time with us and for sp really for sending this book to me because this is honestly going to be a very important part of what I term my entrepreneurial library, and I thank you. Thank you, Denise. I've enjoyed it very much. I appreciate you having, you having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay. So okay. Before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience yeah. to be sure to look for us on iTunes and anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without finding us. Just look for your partner in Success Radio and take us along on your success journey. Again, Jim, thank you. Thank you. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 